Welcome to the Heal and Expand podcast. I am your host, Yaro K. Bukans, clinically trained therapist, healer, and personal power mentor. In my world, healing is the gateway to expansion, and your personal power is gold. Join me on a journey through the holy trinity of healing, psychological, spiritual, and somatic, using a combination of storytelling, psychoeducation, and ancient wisdom we will excavate and explore what it means and how to heal and expand. Thank you for being here. I would love to start today's episode by everyone just settling in and taking one long, slow, deep breath. From the crown of your head to your third eye, to your throat, to your chest and your collarbones and your heart, allowing your heart to relax, to your solar plexus, to your lower abdomen, to the base of your spine. Settling into your body and noticing any tension or tightness or resistance to doing so Just noticing. And as you settle in to listen to this episode, allowing your heart to be open and your mind to be curious, suspending any judgment, which we are going to be talking about judgment. So when you're ready, slowly orienting yourself back into your space, I would love for us to begin with a quote from Anais Nin. Anxiety is love's greatest killer. It makes others feel as you might when a drowning man holds on to you. You want to save him, but you know he will strangle you with his panic. This was much of my life in relationships with anxious attachment. And I spoke in last week's episode. So if you have not listened to it yet, you may want to listen to episode two before you listen to episode three so that you have more context to what I'm referring to. I spoke in last week's episode about feeling judged around a relationship that I was in with a man who basically had a harem of women. And I didn't go into great detail around that because it didn't really need it. It was literally like having, he had a harem and he was very good at it. He was open with most of the women, not everyone, most of the women. He was very open with me from the beginning. And I was totally okay with the situation. I was taking a breath because there's a lot here. And it makes me teary because I think of tiny little Yarrow and just how terrified she felt and how much I neglected her. So if I looked at the situation from my wise self, And I was only 23 at the time, but I still had a very wise self from a very young age. And I don't say that to, you know, other than I really did. Like when I found God on the dance floor of a rave at 19, it was like, oh, I see everything. And yet I'm still a human and I still have wounding from this lifetime. And I have childhood trauma and I have a little tiny part of me that was not attuned to and who needs lots of love and holding. So when I was 19 and I found God on the dance floor of a rave and I felt the oneness of everything, the connection of everything. And I felt like, you know, there are, we're not just in this lifetime. We have 
karma from other lifetimes. We have many lifetimes. We have our own dharmas. We have our own lessons. Like we do not know the trajectory of another person's soul. Like I said last week, and I knew that so fully through my whole being, like this one lifetime is just a tiny little blip in the whole of everything. But as a human living this experience, I have to honor what that means and what that is to be a human living this experience. So when I looked at this from my wise self, I didn't want to be with this man. I really truly enjoyed our intimacy so much and was getting so much from it and was learning so much from the relationship. It was really breaking me open in a lot of ways and almost forcing me to release my control, which is an addictive behavior and a maladaptive coping mechanism. And as I shared in episode one, I used to really control my relationships. I really, that anxious attachment, it wants to control, it wants to hold on, it wants to know everything. It's very graspy. It's like a child, right? Like it just wants to be held, wants validation, wants to be held, wants to know everything's okay. Like if the the theme line for anxious attachment should be, is everything okay? Is everything okay? Is everything okay? Is everything okay? Oh, it just, it makes me feel so panicky on the inside just to even think back to having felt that way. So when I looked at this relationship, I was like, well, I don't want to actually be with him. I am okay with the situation. But there was something in me that felt like I had to convince everybody of what was going on. I had to convince everybody that I was the chosen one, that there was love there, that there was real intimacy there, that there was a real connection. There was a real connection. There was love there. I wasn't going to be chosen. I didn't want to be chosen. And we weren't meant to be together in that way. But there's so much judgment from other people. And then I, in turn, judged myself because I felt like I wasn't the good girl for doing what I was doing. I wasn't living in alignment with honoring myself, even though I was learning so much and there was so much value in the relationship. I couldn't just enjoy that because I was still stuck in needing to feel accepted, needing to feel validated. There have been so many times in my life that I have sacrificed my own authenticity for feeling the need to be accepted. Now, Dr. Gabor Mate speaks about attachment versus authenticity. So what this means is you will choose your attachment relationships over your authentic self. We start to do this as a child because it's what gets our needs met. And then we repress our authentic selves and we... Uh, favor what our attachment relationships believe. And so we don't allow ourselves to actually live our authentic lives. So I really wanted that validation and that acceptance and to be, you know, revered in some sort of way. And so I felt like when I went against what other people thought was okay and acceptable, I didn't stop doing it, but I felt like I had to convince them why it was okay. So there was that happening. And then there was my anxious attachment that was activated, even though I knew I didn't want it to be activated. Like I knew I didn't want to be with this person, but I still felt all of the things that come along with anxious attachment. I still felt graspy. I still obsessed. I still ruminated. I ad nauseum would obsess about the situation and talk about it and analyze it and all of the different dimensions to it. Uh, And in a lot of ways, it was like, you know, being in a psychology project, which obviously I love that, right? Like I said last week, the human heart has always been what I care about most. 
But because I was so activated and then I was going to people with it, they were responding to how I was acting. And then I would judge myself and I was judging myself and other people were judging me. And then it was just perpetuating. The shame was getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And I wasn't going to stop doing what I was doing anyways. So it was almost like a lose-lose situation. I wasn't going to stop what I was doing, but I wanted to convince everybody that what I was doing is okay. And I was judging myself the entire time and judging everyone else in the process. Now, judgment is a protector against my own shame and my own pain. Now, let's go back in my life to where this judgment protector began, which I actually didn't realize where it began until a couple of years ago. So I haven't seen my father since I was two years old. And that's a big thing in my life, bigger than I have realized, because when you don't see one, someone since you're two years old, you kind of like diminish it. You know, I would laugh about it. I would make jokes about it. He would send me presents on my birthday and Christmas through most of my life. So there was this strange presence of him, but he was not in my life. And the story from my mom was that he had married someone else and she told him that she didn't want him to see me anymore because she felt like she grew up just fine without her father and I would be just fine without my father and he listened to her. Now, as a child, it is a lot easier to judge that woman than it is to be with the pain of my father listening to that woman. I've since asked my father about this because we communicated once and he has like a different story to tell, but that kind of is neither here nor there. The reality is, is that this is a story I was told. And in a child's brain, what I did was I judged the woman and judgment then became a huge protector because what was I protecting myself against? Well, I was protecting myself against the grief of losing my father And this didn't really become super apparent to me until I got a little older, like in my late twenties, my mid thirties. And I would see men with their daughters and I would feel this loss of like, I never got to have that. I had a beautiful stepfather. I've had really lovely men in my life who have cared for me, but I have not had a father. And so as I realized that there was pain there, it's, I still couldn't totally access what was happening. And then at one point in my compassionate inquiry program with Dr. Gabor Mate, we were, you know, doing dyad work. And one of the people who I was working with really got me to this place of grief around my dad. And I was coming at it with, I have this protector of judgment. I don't know where it comes from. I have this dynamic that shows up of like me and someone else and there's this beautiful connection and then there's another person and I will judge the other person. And there's always this triangulation that happens. And what I got to was, oh, this is a wound from childhood where I would judge this other woman because I wasn't dealing with the grief of my father. And so this showed up over and over and over again in my life until I had this realization. And I actually, there's a video I did on Instagram. I will put it in the show notes actually, where I speak about this because I'm just like a mess, like crying all day, like so much grief. And I could feel the purging of the grief. I could feel 
the release of the protector of judgment and finally actually allowing myself to feel the pain of losing my father. So the judgment protected me from that grief because it was easier to judge the other person than it was to feel the grief of losing someone or of that betrayal. And so this showed up in my life over and over and over again until I freed myself from it, from that dynamic. And so when you're looking at your life and you're looking at patterns, look at what shows up over and over again. How is this serving as a catalyst for me to grieve, for me to process pain, for me to be with the shame? You will always be able to find that thread. When I found that thread and I pulled back and I realized that judgment was a protector, and that it was a it was causing me to avoid actual grief and loss it transformed everything for me because then when judgment comes in i can go oh judgment there you are i see you i know you're trying to protect me and i can soften it and i can be with myself and be with the pain be with the grief so that i am able to shift and when i'm able to shift and grieve and process the pain there's lightness to the situation. I no longer have to be in it so fully. So at this point in my early 20s, I hadn't yet realized this. And so there was a lot of judgment. There was judgment from from others. There was judgment towards myself. Overanalyzing and obsessing about the other dynamics in the situation was a way of me, excuse me, not having to be with the fact that I had this connection with this man and it was limited in its capacity. He was limited in his capacity to be with me. I knew I didn't really want to be with him, even though I wasn't fully admitting that because my anxious attachment had me grasping and holding on. And there was just judgment circling around and people were meeting me in my dysregulated state. And like I spoke about last week, When you come to people who, and you're dysregulated and they are dysregulated and they don't know how to hold pain, they're responding to you. So we are not adept at holding each other back to regulation. That's why we have therapists. Even then though, like back then I would go to therapists, they would tell me very unhelpful things. They weren't able to just help me tease apart what was really happening. They weren't really even talking about, oh, this is anxious attachment. It's so clearly anxious attachment. And I'm a wild animal and I like to do things the way I like to do them, but because I'm also very loving and very kind and I I get attached, I do, I, I love humans, being in that wild way was not always compatible with who I am at my core. And I've learned that through multiple different relationships and situations. And in this one in particular, I was learning so much about myself and there was this little tiny child who was anxiously attached and she was activated and she was holding on and there was judgment from myself, judgment from others. And that judgment followed me through my life in multiple situations. And I could see how this has played out over and over and over and over again. And the thing is, is that our lessons will get sneakier. You start to learn them and you're like, oh, okay, I see. That's the thing. I'm going to choose differently next time. And then you think you choose differently and then something else shows up and you're like, oh, I actually didn't choose differently. This is the exact same situation. It can feel a little bit like you're banging your head against a wall until you recognize what are the protectors that are coming out? What are the lessons that I'm avoiding learning? And so for me, I really had to learn to let go. 
I, as much as I am someone who is trained as a psychologist, psychologist, I also fully believe in our spiritual path. I believe we have lessons. I believe that we are here to transform spiritually. And each of us has different lessons and they all kind of go back to similar themes like love and forgiveness and letting go. And one of mine has definitely been letting go. And I've held on really tightly with the obsessive compulsive disorder, with the anxiety, with the anxious attachment and feeling safe enough in my body to let go has been everything for me. And at that time, when I was 23 years old and I was seeing this man, I felt like I had to hold on, which really didn't make any sense because I didn't want to be with him. And it was okay for me to experience my relationship with him without making it such a big thing. And the reason I made it such a big thing was because I had so much unprocessed childhood grief inside of me. And that's something I wouldn't realize for another 15 years. And when I realized that, when I actually grieved, when I actually felt the pain in my body, when I healed my nervous system around this, when I really truly rewired my nervous system, which rewired my brain and healed my attachment wound, everything shifted in my life. Those things that once activated me no longer did. The way that I used to, the, the lens through which I saw the world completely shifted. That wasn't how it was when I was 23 but it is how it is now. And I can look back and I can see how judgment served me so well back then. I can see how I, you know, used it as such a deep protector. And this would show up again with the next relationship I had, the relationship after that over and over and over. So when you're looking back on your journey, when you're looking back on your healing, when you're looking back at your life and you're like, where are the areas where I keep banging my head against the wall? What keeps happening? I ask you to get radically honest about the ways that you are having protectors block you from just learning the lessons that need to be learned or from feeling the pain that needs to be felt or from being with the shame. We do anything to avoid shame because shame says I'm wrong. And so in that scenario, when I was, you know, seeing this DJ, I felt very shameful because I wasn't going to be chosen. And I'm using air quotes right now. I wasn't going to be chosen. I wasn't going to be his girlfriend. And that was okay. But I didn't think it was okay because my ego felt like I had to be chosen. I had this vision of myself as being someone who is the girlfriend. And this went against my ego, this went against my self-identity. It wasn't who I saw myself as. And so I spent a lot of time wasting a lot of time obsessing when I needed to just be being, but I wasn't able to just be. And we suck the joy out of life all the time because we are unable to be. And this is a lot of what I do in my healing method is I help you feel safe to just be. We are meant to live. We are meant to dive into life and to feel and to explore and to just 
revel in joy and pleasure and ecstasy and pain and all of the things. And we stunt that because we're so terrified of being judged, of judging ourselves, of not doing it right, of all of the things that we don't allow ourselves to actually live. We're so scared of getting hurt or hurting others. We're so scared to actually just let ourselves fully be who we are. And as I moved through that relationship and I shifted out of it into the one where I told you there was a man who looked in my eyes and made me just love myself, he destroyed my heart. Destroyed it. And I'm not going to tell a lot of details about that for a multitude of reasons. But when he destroyed my heart, that was while I was at the fine dining restaurant. So back to episode one. So with the DJ, I remember it so clearly. And I referenced this last week, but I was sitting on my back porch and I was in the sun and I was on the phone with him, like one of those little flip phones, you know? And he was talking about the same stuff he would always talk about, the different girls he was seeing, whatever, like just bullshit, uh, just going on and on and on. Things that I used to give into because I was like, it was a way to connect. It was a way, you know, like a lot of times we will connect through judgment and gossip because that's how we know to connect with someone. And we just want to connect. We're humans. We want to be seen. We want to be held. We want to feel alive with, a, with another being. And our culture is very much around gossip, talking about other people, analyzing, you know, we bond through sickness. We bond through brokenness. We bond through struggle. And a lot of that is that we all have these inner children who have not been seen and held not been heard, not been validated. And when I can look back at this man, he just wanted attention, a lot of attention. He needed a lot of attention. And so he was talking about this and I used to get really engaged in this and like analyze and want to know all the things. And I remember thinking, God, I don't give a fuck about this at all. And it was the last time I ever spoke to him. And I remember walking into the restaurant that next day and seeing this other man and he looked in my eyes and I literally felt like shame, like I have been degrading myself. I felt like I had been in bed with the devil and I was met with an angel. And I, you all know I'm not religious. I don't really believe, I don't believe in heaven and hell, but like, that's just what it felt like in my body. And I leaned into that. I leaned into what it felt like to be fully loved. And when this man destroyed my heart for reasons that were beyond both of our control. And again, I'm not going to go into that on this podcast, unfortunately. Too many, too many personal things around this one. I was left to myself. I was left to myself in my studio apartment in San Francisco. It was the first time I'd lived alone. I was working at this restaurant in San Francisco. I had moved from a food runner to the front of the house. So I was working as a back server. And then I moved into being a cocktail server in the lounge area. And I was heartbroken, just heartbroken. I remember I used to wake up and I would think, this is why people do heroin because this pain is so deep. I feel like I'm going to die. Oh, I can feel it now thinking about it because this man loved me so deeply. 
and it allowed me to see myself for the first time. But when I lost him, it felt like I lost everything. And so in that, I knew I was 25 at the time. And I was like, okay, I haven't seen my dad since I was two. There's something here. I need to heal this. I need to work on this. So I found my dad on the internet. The internet was newer (laughs) at the time. I found my dad on the internet. I wrote him a letter with my email. I included, included my email address in it and he responded. And it was a very beautiful response. And I tried to correspond with him a little bit, but it just fell flat. I never even really knew why. It just fell flat. Like there was no connection. There was nothing happening. But I knew that this deep pain I was feeling was something that I needed to grieve. Again, I wouldn't really truly grieve this until a few years ago, but I was trying. I was leaning into it. I was exploring options. And I was deeply heartbroken. I was like destroyed at my core because I lost this person. And so I started writing. I knew I didn't want to go to law school. I was really at that time, very confused. And I was like, maybe I'll be a neurosurgeon. (laughs) Maybe I'll be a ballet dancer. Like, so literally also all over, all over the place. And I decided to write my story and write the story of my heartbreak, write the love story that was that relationship. So I sat down and I started writing I took some acting classes to learn how to write dialogue. I was terrible at those. Not an actor. Really get stage fright, really freeze. I really go into a freeze response on the stage. Um, And I always have. My mom tells this story of when I was a ballet, tiny little ballerina, and I was in the Nutcracker. And she's like, you ran out on the stage and you immediately turn around and ran off. (laughs) So I have some stage fright. And only when I have to perform speaking, I am totally fine. But when I have to perform total stage fright, and I have always thought of this. So I was a terrible actor, but it really helped me with the dialogue. I I immersed myself in reading and in writing and like exploring myself creatively. Like it totally changed the trajectory of my life. And I started to write novels and I was practicing yoga and I was writing novels and I was working in the restaurant. And then One day, my mom said, you know, I really think you should go to Bikram yoga teacher training. And at that point, I had been practicing for about four years. And I was like, I don't want to be a yoga teacher. So here's one thing that I really, truly believe. I believe that we have to be able to hold space in such a powerful way before we do something. And something like teaching yoga has been watered down so much. Like there is a wisdom that needs to be embodied before you can stand there and hold space for bodies in that way. Hold space for all of the trauma that is being moved through, for the breath, for the rhythm, for the emotions that are coming up. Yoga for me was a full emotional cleanse every single time I went in there. I think I cried every day that I practiced for like the first two years. There was so much happening. There was so much anxiety that was being released. There was so many, there were so many revelations I was having. And I remember when I was practicing and there was a friend of mine who practiced and she had been practicing for about six, for about six months. And I had been practicing for two years. And she was like, I'm going to go to teacher training. And I remember thinking, how can you, hold space for all these humans when you yourself still have not mastered this. 
Now, that's not to say that I feel like we have to be masters of things before we do them. I do think that in this culture, we sometimes have instant gratification and we do not spend time tending to the things that need to be tended to before we actually are able to hold the power of what we want and who we who we be in this world. So for me, being a yoga teacher at six months, a year, two years, three years in felt like no way that's not ethical. Four years in, I felt like, okay, I think I can do this. I think I could hold this. So on my mom's suggestion, I decided to go to Bikram yoga teacher training. Now at this point in time, I had just started dating someone else. uh, And I often say of him that we bonded over our mutual pain rather than we fell in love. And we had so many good things in our relationship. And to this day, he is still the longest relationship that I have, I've had. Um, And we were just kind of starting to date when I decided that I was going to move from San Francisco to LA to go to Bikram yoga teacher training. And I was going to stay in LA. And I kind of used it as a way to get out of San Francisco because I felt like my time in San Francisco had run its course, but I didn't technically have a reason to leave. And I was writing novels and I was like, I want to be in LA. I had stars in my eyes, right? You know, this goes again back to like wanting to be accepted. At the time, what was super cool was like Lindsay Lohan and Paris Hilton and all the partying in West Hollywood. And I just wanted to be a part of that. I wanted to be a part of that world, even though here I was at 23, 24, 25, just doing all this yoga and journaling and meditating and like exploring myself spiritually. I was not, those those were not my things. Like I was not a partier. I wasn't drinking. I had no interest in that scene. But there was this want to be accepted. There was this want to be a part of it. And spirituality was not cool then the way it is now. It was not accepted. You were still kind of laughed at for it. And so I took this opportunity to move to LA. And I was like, (laughs) I just was really enjoying writing and purging the darkness of my soul out onto the page and all of the pain that I had from this deep heartbreak that I had experienced. So I moved to LA to go to Bikram Yoga teacher training. It was in 2006. I left in August. Teacher training started in September. So I had about a month in LA before teacher training started. And I was still tending to a broken heart but it was better. It had alleviated a lot. The first year was awful. I felt literally like I couldn't make it through. I felt like I was being cut open every single day. I felt like I would never live without this person. I was destroyed. And what it caused me to do in that heartbreak was to really get clear on who I am, on what I want, on who I want to be. And it caused me to go inside. And when I went inside, I started to really understand the impact I wanted to have in the world. I just wasn't totally guided to where that, how I was going to do that yet. So I thought it was going to be through writing novels. And I really got focused on this and I was 26 years old and I was writing and I was really enjoying it. 
my anxiety and my OCD were like, they were under, under the, under the radar, right? They were there, but they were still under the radar or they had, you know, diminished to be under the radar. So they weren't totally activated. I was feeling a little bit more settled, but I didn't feel like I fit in in the world. I felt really out of place. Like I, for, especially for being in my mid twenties, I felt like very serious. I felt, you know, like I didn't feel understood. I didn't feel held. And then I got into this other relationship and I moved to LA and he was still in San Francisco and I was uncertain what we were going to do. And I decided to just go into Bikram yoga teacher training, but I really didn't want to be a yoga teacher. I really just wanted to be a writer but I decided I was going to use this as an opportunity to get to get to LA. And so I entered Bikram yoga teacher training and I feel like we will end there for today. This episode went a little bit all over the place, but I want you to take away from it is where are your protectors? What are the, what are they? Are they control? Are they judgment? Are they anxiety? Are they anxious attachment? Are they avoidant attachment? Are they disorganized attachment, which would mean feeling like you want intimacy more than anything, but then when you have it, you just want to push it away and then you want to pull it back in and then you want to push it away and then you want to pull it back in and then you want to push it away. I feel like we live in a bit of a disorganized attached society. We want intimacy so badly, but then it feels terrifying because we're not being, we're not used to being seen, held and loved. And when I had my heart broken, that anxious attachment really shifted for me and I did become more avoidantly attached because I knew I didn't want to act out like that. I knew I didn't want to be graspy. I knew I didn't want to be holding on and I still didn't feel totally safe in my body. So what I did was I replaced my addictive behavior of other people or of anxiety or OCD with yoga Yoga became an addictive behavior for me. And the irony of this is that I knew it was an addictive behavior for others, but I was in denial around its addictive nature for me. Anything can be an addictive behavior. It doesn't matter what it is. It's just the energetic charge behind it. And the thing was, is that I couldn't just live life without there being a hot Bikram studio around. I was so unsettled unless I practiced. And yes, it was beautiful because it was helping me to transform. But I didn't feel grounded. I didn't feel connected into my body. I didn't feel able to just be. And we live in this society where we don't feel able to just be. We don't feel able to connect and be present and be joyful and be with each other in full acceptance. We're always judging ourselves or we're judging others or we're judging the trajectory of someone's life or we're shaming ourselves or we're feeling shame or we're isolating. What happens if we just come together and we fully accept each other's experience of life? What would happen in your body if someone just held you in your experience and was like, I've got you. I'm here with you. I'm not judging you with full compassion and holding and love. We don't even have that for ourselves. We are so mean to ourselves. We are so hard on ourselves. We are so unable to believe in our infinite power. 
and it inhibits us from creating lives that feel how we want them to feel, from believing that we can create lives that feel how we want them to feel. My ego got in my way for so many years. My inability to just get radically honest and to accept that I wasn't going to be accepted in the way that I wanted to be accepted and that that was okay, got in my way for so many years. So we will pause here. I'd love for you to trace the line of your wounds. What's the theme? What are the lessons that you potentially, whether consciously or unconsciously, have been avoiding? And how might you come into relationship with that perfectionism, with that control, with that judgment? How might you more fully allow yourself to live, to be alive through all of your being and all of your cells to actually allow yourself to be you. And just take another long, slow, deep breath. Always take time to come home to yourselves, dear ones. All right, I will see you next week. If you love this episode and want to share it with the world, screenshot, post, and tag me at Heal with Yarrow or the Heal and Expand podcast on Instagram so I can enter you in a drawing to win my 40-day course of Mastering Abundance, a journey to money magic, wealth, and abundance. And if you want to get notified of the next episode, go ahead and subscribe here on iTunes so you never miss a chapter. Thank you for healing and expanding with me. Take time to come home to yourself always, and I will see you soon, dear ones.